the failure to act with sufficient ambition to avert the climate catastrophe will be the greatest moral failure of our time. Making changes takes courage, and if we don't change things, we won't have a future. We need a president who respects science, who understands that the damage from climate change is already here. You have stolen my dreams and my childhood with your empty words. Change is coming, whether you like it or not. Zero Carbon Easter. Hello and welcome to Zero Carbon Easter, Series 2, The Manifesto. I'm Ian Collins. It's that Friday feeling. Oh, hang on. It's a Tuesday. More on that in just a moment. That Tuesday feeling. The sun has come out in celebration. The Green Agenda, of course, continues apace. And each week we bring you those essential environmental stories. The man with the roadmap is Dale Vince, the green entrepreneur, and also the chairman of Forest Green Rovers. We have the stories and we have your questions. Morning to you, darling. Let's start with... With a question, because Sam on Facebook, straight out the hatches, says, Dale, it's Friday evening and I'm waiting for this week's episode. Where is it? Yeah, I nearly put a message out on social media over the weekend to say uh, gremlins got in the way on Friday and we're going to have a crack at this on Tuesday. And then uh, and then I forgot because, uh, you know, the weekend got in the way. A lot of sunshine. Just had our hottest day of the year and wettest May ever, haven't we? All at the yeah. same time. So, you know, who says climate change isn't happening? No, some say that's a coincidence. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Every time. <laughs> yeah. It's like the extremities of the the monsoon we've had. It feels like it rained every day since Christmas. That's mad. And I, I do think we get a different kind of rain these days as well. You yeah, know, I think right. when it rains, it really pours. And we can see that in the drains at FGR, the drains under our pitch, we're having to actually upgrade them, you know, because they wow. were, just because of the sheer amount. Yeah, they, they, they were designed, you know, for, for a different era, a different wow. kind of rain. Things do change. Uh, Let's bring into the dock our first exhibit, uh, which are major oil companies. They're never far from from our BDI on this, uh, Dale. But this was a story that kind of hatched uh, just tail end of last week, called a cataclysmic day for three major oil companies in which investors rebelled over climate fears and a court ordered fossil fuel emissions to be slashed. Um, And this is a Dutch court. Uh, that ordered this, uh, ordered Shell and the like to cut carbon emissions from its oil and gas by 45%. Um, I'm assuming this came as a surprise to the oil companies by the sounds of it. Well, yeah, they'd been fighting it for a little while in court. It was Shell that was ordered to slash its emissions uh, 45% by 2030. And the court basically rejected Shell's zero carbon by 2050 plan uh, as being super vague yeah. uh, and ordered them to act basically comply with the Paris Agreement. And I think that's the real standout milestone here. Oh. A, a court has ordered an oil company to comply with the Paris Agreement, which is incredible. And Shell have uh, bleated about it. They said they will appeal. That could take a couple of years, but the court's decision is binding on them in the meantime, so they've got to crack on. Some analysts are saying that they'll have to cut production by a million barrels of oil per day. It'll cost them £6 billion per year to do this and hit this target. Mm. And also they're saying Shell claim that the the zero carbon policy is in accordance with the Paris Accord. If they're confident of that, why are they appealing? Because the ruling only says they have to comply with Paris. I mean, it's bollocks, isn't it? Because clearly they're complying or they're not, and they're clearly not. So, I mean, the court didn't just make it up. No, that's right. It's bollocks, as you say, climate bollocks. We should have a section for that in every every episode. Yeah, I can hear a new sound effect coming on. <laughs> Shudder to think what it might be. Uh, here's a question from Zoe, who says, I'm one of, I love this question. I'm one of several parents at my kid's school. 
primary school. This is trying to encourage them to talk about climate emergency. Any views on how you make this accessible to kids without giving them nightmares? So there's been a few attempts at this over the years, some rather patronizing. I remember as a kid, you know, it was it was very, uh, I mean, any, any attempt from some kind of character that they thought was cool for kids never seemed to really work. Uh, there's got to be a way of tapping into this area because it's absolutely vital, right? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think kids are aware of the climate crisis. They are picking that up. Uh, and I think what's missing in schools actually is weaving sustainability into uh, all of the topics of the curriculum so that, uh, you know, we're we're preparing kids for the world that they're going to grow up in to and, and actually be in charge of. You know, it's, it's going to yeah. be a world. I mean, we're already impacted by climate change. It's just a question of how much of that we get by the time that they're adults. And we're not preparing kids for this. And we began a project with a local primary school uh, about a year ago, actually. Uh, I knew the headmaster because uh, my boys went there. And he said, actually, what he wanted to produce at the end of uh, you know the, the kids' time with him, age 11, I think it is, uh, were, were kind of kids that really understood sustainability issues. And so we agreed to work together. And we've just come up with a curriculum. He's going to road test it in his school from September. And then yeah. we're going to... We're going to roll it out nationally, but basically sure. we've, we've woven sustainability into every single topic on the curriculum because, you know, it does exist there. It's just not taught right. there. Uh, and then we're going to offer it nationally and, and see if we can't help schools and kids, uh, you know, get on board yeah, with, yeah. Uh, with this big issue, biggest issue of the day, really, and of tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so that's coming soon. I wonder whether I was just looking at the weekend, President Biden making this big first uh, budget announcement, six trillion dollars, four point two trillion pounds, the package that includes a huge investment in fighting climate change. Now, obviously, it's been resisted by the, the Republicans. They are insanely <laughs> expensive and one called it immoral as well, which is rather interesting. But I guess big statements and announcements like that, you kind of think or you sort of like to think that it would naturally follow that the conversation is now up and running. It's irredeemable. And that yeah, translate into schools as well. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, it's happening in, in boardrooms as well. I mean, the other part of the, the big oil story that we talked about with Shell was Exxon Mobile uh, or Mobile, I'm not sure what it is. Anyway, two of the long uh, standing board members were kicked off by, by a vote in favor of a couple of members from a from a brand new six month old activist uh, fund. Um, and, and it's all about the climate crisis. Yeah. And uh, and for another company, Chevron, I think it was, uh, 60% of shareholders voted for a, for a target for carbon reduction. So these are oil company shareholders voting to reduce carbon emission, not just the courts doing it, but shareholders. So I think, you know, this totally is happening. And the money that's being spent on fossil fuels now, the investments of the banks, the, you know, the billions, trillions every year, that's going to increasingly now divert into renewable energy. That's happening. What Biden's doing, I mean, just helps massively yeah. uh, because the world tends to follow what the US does. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th I, I sense so too. Um, uh, let's move on to matters football. Uh, here's one from Jake. I was going to try and impart Jake's anger in the question. Um, I've been a long time Forest Green Rover supporter. Uh, got behind a lot of what you stand for, Dell. But tell me, I can hear him frothing at this point. Why have you done a sponsorship deal? Now he's incandescent with Sports Direct. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, it's a fair question. Um, it's, you knew that kind of question would come, right? Yeah, I mean, we asked ourselves it, you know, because it's been uh, under discussion here probably for about six months. And it's actually sponsorship of our women's team, uh, which we've also just kind of amalgamated with the club. It used to be a standalone uh, entity. Yeah. It's just gained promotion. And 
is part of our our plan for it to move up three leagues uh, in in parallel to what the men's team is doing. And we're building a girls' academy alongside the boys' academy and just creating right. uh, that kind of equal footing for boys and girls in the game. And it's part of that. It's, I don't know, 50, 60 grand a year that we think uh, can do a lot of good yep. in in the women's game. I think it's the biggest sponsorship in women's football at the I'm grassroots sure, yeah. level, uh, like, like ever, according to yeah. Sports Direct. But, you know, hey. But what we're not doing is... Uh, justifying or standing up for or, or even accepting uh you know the the stuff that the bad side of sports direct there is a bad side there's no doubt about it there's also a growing interest in the environment we've been having conversations about that what we hope is that we can influence them at least on the environment side of life yeah. i think uh, working practices is a problem uh, but what i think about that is that the uh the, the problem is in the hands of the government because laws allow these practices to take place and because uh, big companies, Amazon, Sports Direct and people like that, they have these zero hours contracts and uh, an approach to, to people, to workers, which is you know essentially abusive. That's allowed in law. The competitors do it, so they kind of have to do it to compete. And, and we have, in, in effect, a race to the bottom. And if you look at things like the uh, minimum wage that came in a long time ago now, sure, even though it's uh, reckoned by people on the right wing of life that it would it would kill jobs and, and all this kind of stuff. It hasn't done that. And now you have Tories and Labour competing with each other to put the minimum wage up. But what you have there is a raised bar of standards. And we need that raised bar of standards in employment law. That's what I think. Although I did once interview, and I won't say whether it was the head of Sports Direct or whether it was another head of a sporting emporium, um, who said to me that if they had to hand out 39-hour a week guaranteed contracts. They they would never have anybody working there because nobody wants them. And I mean, this may have been an excuse, but their point was the business model very much survives on people looking for casual work and students and that kind of thing. And no one would ever do what they need to do at a shop for thirty nine hours. I don't know if there's any truth in that, but I can I can almost I can see the dilemma that some companies have. Yeah, I don't buy that myself. Um, actually, and you know, that often there's an argument made for zero hours contracts that it's what people want, you know. And I, I kind of, I, I think f- for a small minority of people, that may be true. But anyway, that's a that, choice, wouldn't it? I think that yeah. would be the better way to look at it. If well, there you is that. Want yeah. to do the casual stuff, then fine. But if you actually want a job where you know you can feed your kids yeah. and it's guaranteed, it would be quite nice to have the guarantee. And that's how it used to be, casual work or full-time work. Yeah, yeah. You know, if you're doing 39 hours a week or if you want to do 39 hours a week, you kind of, as you say, would like to have a guarantee that you can do yeah. rather than be guaranteed nothing. I mean, that's a precarious way to live, and I do think it's wrong. Yeah. Uh, this one from Chrissy, just staying with Forest Green Rovers. Uh, congratulations on the new head coach. Great signing, but... For the, I love this, but for the first time ever, they're getting younger than me, and that's a weird feeling. It's a bit like when you realise police officers are younger than you, isn't it? I have no idea. When head when head coaches are younger, because yeah. you know you look at these people as kind of like teachers. They're they're always meant to be older than you. Yeah, I think somebody told me, um, I was doing an interview a few days ago, somebody told me our new head coach Rob is 38 or something like that. And I, I mean, I didn't know. I never looked to see how old he was uh, or anything like that. But I think it is uh, probably indicative of the uh, different approach that we took. You know, we said at the, uh, kind of at the outset, we wanted to avoid the management merry-go-round, you know, the the names, the same names that circulate, they've kind yeah, of yeah. Been, been there and done it or almost done it kind of management uh, type people who tend to be older. 
and instead we were looking for some uh, somebody younger, more dynamic that had grown up in a more modern version of football, you know, with sports science, medicine, data analytics, that kind of stuff. And yeah, Rob, uh, Rob has been, uh, he's just left the England set up uh, to join yeah. us actually. And um, yeah, he comes with a great pedigree and a, and a really modern uh, dynamic outlook. I yeah, think- that's a very positive, uh, you know, to go into to, to kind of summer and then ready for the next season. That's quite a nice feeling that this kind of new um, team or direction is is there under the belt, ready to go. Yeah, and the, the guy joining him, Richie, uh, has worked with him before, and they've worked as in and out of possession coaches, which I really love the concept of. And, you know, I honestly think that we've just begun our next era at FGR with this appointment. Very excited for next season. Yeah. Greta Thunberg, uh, let's, uh, just before we go back to some more questions, a, a final story about Greta Thunberg is warning humanity must shift to a plant-based diet quickly to prevent more ecological and health crisis. Um, she posted a video online and she urged people, and I quote, don't be offended by the language. Uh, she, I, she said, I urge people to change what they eat, warning bluntly, if we don't change, we're f***ed. <laughs> yeah. Fair it's, enough, really. Yeah, slightly, uh, slightly rude, maybe. Uh, I don't think... I, I can't imagine Greta ever swearing. I mean, that's, yeah. the, that's the first thing I take from this story. Yeah, I mean, she has obviously strong views on stuff. I, I, I think the language myself was was perhaps not necessary, but tends to have a big impact, that kind of thing. And and I was thinking, actually, I mean, we haven't heard it for a long time and you may have lost it, but this is almost a book bugle moment. Oh, no, wait a minute. There it is. There it is. Hey. Um, because, you know, in uh, in Manifesto, I point out that we've got these interlinked crises. We've got the climate crisis of course, but we've got the uh, human health crisis that's coming about from the burning of fossil fuels and our diets. We've got the wildlife and habitat loss uh, crises as well, and they're all interlinked. And we have to do two things, stop burning fossil fuels and stop eating animals. In in essence, it, it looks like uh, you know, Greta's saying the same thing. She's been a big advocate of, of getting off fossil fuels uh, for a while now and turning her attention to food and to animal farming uh, can only be a good thing. What do you do then if you're someone like me, Dale, who attended a, like a family barbecue thing at the weekend? And uh, I had, to, I, and I knew that this was going to be a lot of meat at this barbecue. What I didn't, I think the guy running it robbed a farm beforehand. I mean, this was just a, the most extraordinary display of every cut and carcass you could imagine was oh, like frying away on this barbecue. So I went a little bit an, uh, evangelical. I went Dale Vince on the thing, uh, frankly, and. <laughs> Suddenly, it sort of flared up as I'm sitting there, literally, it's absolutely true, sitting there eating a really lovely bean salad with peppers and avocados and everything was beautiful. And we'd made it ourselves to take it to the barbecue because we knew this was going to be a meat fest. And then, of course, you get into the conversation with people. Oh, you're not having a burger, mate, and all, all of this business. And, you know, people had you know, stacked up on their per individual plate, you know, two and a half pigs and a cow. Um, might have been a bit of goat in there somewhere. I mean, it was just an extraordinary. How do you, I, I mean, I, I was trying to have the conversation. You know, I'm living this kind of life vicariously at the moment, but I'm trying to have this conversation. And it's very hard when you've got 32 meatheads looking at you. <laughs> and I'm sitting there with my tomato salad. <laughs> Great image. I was the Greta of the piece, though. You'd have been quite proud of me, actually. I nearly put you, I, was, I thought, should I call Dale and put you on speakerphone just so you can... <laughs> Like a few words from our master. <laughs> that would have been fun. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you just make me think of football there. You know, I mean, football is a, an, an environment that's, uh, you know, typically quite quite macho, quite male-dominated. Uh, and introducing vegan diets into that, you know, has been a little bit like that situation you describe. Uh, yeah. 
yeah, we get a lot of kickback from uh, away fans, actually, not home fans, even now. But, uh, you know, it's mostly humorous and banter and that kind of stuff. But the same kind of thing, you know, talking about a big body of people that think eating meat is not just normal, but it's like the right thing to do, you know, the healthy option, the, the manly option, whatever it is. Um, and how do we deal with that? I don't know. But I think keep on eating our salads. Mm. We'll outlive Yeah, I was, I was incredibly satisfied. And there's another thing that happens as well. And you, you'd have experienced this long, long ago, and I'm sure still do. But when you meant, because people divorce kind of the process and what they're eating from what it is, and this is mm. it's largely an ethical um, argument, I suppose. So they don't really think about the chicken or the cow when it's there on the plate. It doesn't look like either. Uh, but actually, once you've got that in your head and then you look across at the man frying, it's like an octopus over there, this fellow frying all his bits and pieces, you know, spinning plates and all manner of things, you know, chuck another carcass on this one's done. It was all of that proper caveman stuff. Mm. But when you look at it and start to smell it, it changes, doesn't it? There's a point within you that says, you know, I, I'm not sure I even want to be around this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I find the smell revolting, actually, as well as the the idea of it. And, and it you're right. I mean, you touched upon an important point. We are divorced from the reality of, of animal farming and meat eating. You know, the the cruelty, the way that animals are, are kept, you know, only for about 18 months, perhaps, before they're slaughtered, because yeah, yeah. that's like, you know, the peak uh, return or, or lack of return, in fact, because we put more food into an animal than we get back out always. Uh, but they're killed very young, uh, killed, killed brutally. And we sanitize those products. We shrink wrap them in plastic. We divorce them from the reality of the slaughterhouse, the murder of, of an innocent creature, the fear, the terror, actually, that they feel in that moment before death. And the process itself is brutally functional. It's so fast. Often, you know, they're not killed at the first moment. Uh, you know, they're semi-conscious for, for, for minutes, bleeding out on the, on the floor of the slaughterhouse. And, and while others are in the queue, you know, able to hear and smell what's happening, even yeah, see yeah. what's happening. You know, I mean, it's the most awful thing, but we don't see that. And if we could see that, uh, I, I don't know who it was who said that, but if slaughterhouses had glass walls, you know, nobody would eat meat. I think yeah, that's a good point. there's something very interesting in there. Good point. It's a good quote. Um, final question from Michael. Dale, do you think we'll always be offsetting our polluting habits or can we really get to a true zero carbon situation here in the UK? Yeah, it's a good question. I think we we shouldn't offset our polluting habits. We have to change our polluting habits. And, and it means just simply stopping burning fossil fuels for energy to power our homes and businesses and for transport. We have to electrify transport, power with renewable energy, and we have to stop eating meat. But if we do those two things, or all animal products, in fact, just those two things, yeah. and we can knock out most of our pollution, most of our emissions. And then for the bit that's left, the really hard to get to bit, then we can offset. And we're talking maybe 5%, maybe 10% of, sure. let's say, Britain's emissions. But we can offset those because when we stop eating animals, we'll free up 75% of all farmland. That's yep. half of our entire country. We can rewild it, give it back to nature, bring all of that good stuff back. And at the yep. same time, soak up that 5 or 10% of very tough to get to emissions uh, that we otherwise can't. So it's a perfect combination. So I say no to offsetting to, to deal with our pollution, but yes to residual offsetting for the hard to get to part. And we can build loads more flats on the land, can't we? We can see some. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's a funny thing. People think that we're, we, you know, we're in a country that's too small. We don't have enough land and that, you know, it's all being concreted over. But yeah, only yeah. 5% of our country is actually built land. That's right. You know, 
uh, 75% is farmland. And, yep. uh, and, you know, 75% of that 75% is only because we choose to eat animals and we don't need to. And we've taken all of that land from nature and we can reverse that by changing our diet. That's a pretty powerful point to finish on. Dale, we'll, we're back on Friday, aren't we? So we've got a, a shorter <laughs> hiatus between this. Uh, but this agenda never stops, as we always say. So there's, there'll be another crock of stories along in a few days' time. Another crock of something. <laughs> we'll speak to you then. Cheers, Dale. Yep, cheers, Ian. That's it for this episode. Don't forget, of course, you can follow the podcast from your podcast provider too. And make sure you follow Dale on social media, twitter.com slash dalevince, facebook.com slash dalevince too. And you'll find Dale on LinkedIn as well. And we're back on Friday. Zero carbon. East off.